Amen. Yeah, that's our Dr. Paul. Um, each week in this series, uh, Rescue from an Ordinary Life, we'll get to hear from one of the elders. We have a, uh, a plurality of elders here, so it's not just me saying, come on, let's go. But uh, uh, I'm one of the elders. I'm the, the first among equals. I'm the lead pastor. And yet, first thing I did was put together a board of elders for me to submit to. Um, and you can tell why. Uh, and so that's Dr. Paul. He, um, he's our eldest elder. And uh, he just... He just Seems like an elder, doesn't he? Doesn't he sound like an elder? Looks like he could run the Jedi Council or something. Like, he's kind of awesome. So he's probably our wisest elder also. I mean, super smart guy. He was the dean of the School of Medicine at LSU. So he's the only guy that wants to talk about football today, okay? And so uh, we're not talking about football today at all. But what I love about him the most is, and probably what defines him most, he's coming up on his 80th birthday. And I don't know what ordinary for 80 is. Yeah, you can cheer 80. It's kind of our goal, right? <laughs> But uh, it's his courage. So he still leads medical mission trips to Jamaica, and he's back and forth uh, to Uganda, Africa, to help us oversee our, our ministry. We leave in Tyler there, uh, a Kohler refuge. And so I just hope and I pray when I'm 80, I have the kind of life and vitality and wisdom and mostly courage that Dr. Paul has. So if you ever see Dr. Paul around, um, you just shake his hand, and, and why don't we just give Dr. Paul a big hand too, right? <laughs> All right, if you've got your Bibles, let's go Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 13. We're in a four-week series <clears throat> entitled, Rescue from an Ordinary Life. Today's message is called, Are You Tracking? You'll see what that means in a minute. Uh, Paul lived in Ephesus for three years, and now he's leaving Ephesus, and he's going to gather the elders of Ephesus together, and he's going to have a little farewell address to these men. And so, Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 13. The Bible says, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for... Now, how do you say that word? Can everybody just look real close? All right, now loosen up, church. All right, the, the Lord put this word in here to, to confound the Southern Baptists, okay? So they wouldn't know what to do when they got to this verse. I just can't say it, Martha. All right, so... I'm not sure how you say it either exactly, uh... I did study this place. It is um, where the family of origin of J-Lo is from. So I don't know if you're aware of that, but it's in the commentaries, I think. All right, if you take yourself seriously, you can leave now. You're going to hate this church. If you think I'm juvenile, it gets worse. Here we go. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul. It says it again, too, just so you can't get by it once. All right. Intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when, and when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and we went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came to the, the following day opposite Chios. And the next day, we touched at Samos. Just sounds like lovely places, doesn't it? And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, the, the reason that's in the Bible is because, one, it actually happened. Like Paul's going to all those different places. But if you'll see here, Paul was going somewhere on purpose. This little itinerary of Paul is actually a picture of how Paul lived his life. That, that you know what I know, that you, you never arrive anywhere worthwhile by accident. See, he was on his way 
to Jerusalem. And so what this entire sit series, Rescue from an Ordinary Life, is all about is I don't want you to arrive anywhere on accident. I don't want you to just get into the flow of the way this world works, the way our, our society works, because you don't want to go where the flow of our world goes. And if you just get in, there is no neutral. It's like when you paddle out on a good day, there's always a drift. And if you don't pay very close attention, you will drift out of the good waves. And you'll be like, how do we get to the poles? Because you just drifted there without paying attention. And so many times what begins to happen is you just, you just go through ordinary life. You go to school, you go to college, and you meet somebody, and you get married, and you get a job. And then before you know it, you just drift into the merry-go-round of normality. And you're spending your best years, all your years, this life that Christ has given you and purchased for you to walk in the freedom that he's purchased for you. And instead of that, you're just taking another lap on the merry-go-round of normality or another lap in the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Oh, this stuff didn't make me happy. Oh, I know what I need. I need more stuff. Take another lap, stupid. All right, that's what that is. And so what this series, Rescued from an Ordinary Life, is about is stepping off of the merry-go-round of normality and into this great adventure that Christ has called you to live. This past year, this summer, I had a speaking engagement in South Padre Island, Texas. Okay? And if you've never been to South Padre Island, just don't. <laughs> There's no need to go. You could just go to Myrtle Beach, it's closer. It's the same thing, all right? Just putt-putt and water parks and stuff. And so I never travel anywhere alone, ever, ever. I just don't travel alone. And, and so to go to South Padre, I took as my travel companion, JP, my seven-year-old son. You want a calamity in your life? Take your seven-year-old, okay? You can't eat ice cream without him, you know, ratting you out to mom. So I take JP. One of the things he wants to do is he wants to go to a water park. So I Google it, and I find this water park called Schlitterbahn. So we go to Schlitterbahn, and we sign up and you know, pay the money, and we get in. Now, here's the brilliance of this water park. That at this water park, you know how most water parks you stand in line, and you spend 90% of your day with a tube in your hand and somebody's rear in your face, right, on the steps? You're like, this isn't awesome, okay? Well, at Schlitterbahn, you get in a tube, and they have these two-man tubes. So Buddy Rose up front, and I'm, I'm in the back. And you just get in a lazy river, and you never have to get out of the water. You just lazy river around the whole day, all right? And when you're ready to ride a ride, you just paddle out of the lazy river, and you don't even leave the water, but then you get in line for the ride. And the rides were epic. I mean, they were awesome. They would shoot you with jet streams and send you up hills and down hills and left and right and over a waterfall, and they were exciting and adventurous. But one of the things I noticed, there were a lot of people that never made it out of the lazy river. They just sat in the tube, and they went round and round in the lazy river, and it's called lazy for a reason. I hope you're making the connection here. That I don't want you to just go with the flow in the lazy river, but it takes effort to paddle yourself out of the lazy river and get on the ride of a lifetime. And I knew I didn't want to spend my day in the lazy river. When about six hours into our day, I go, Hey, JP, do you need to go to the bathroom? Not dad, I'm all set. <laughs> and then you realize what you've been paddling around in all day, okay? <laughs> you see, Paul had a plan. No one arrives anywhere worthwhile on accident. And so these first few verses, verses 13 through 16, this trip itinerary is a pretty cool picture of the way Paul lived his life. I mean, there was a lot going on. He's making a lot of stops, but they were on purpose. He wants to end up in Jerusalem 
um, on the day of Pentecost. And so now what he's going to do in verses 17 through 27, as he's gathered the elders together, these men that he's very, very close with, now what he's going to do is he is going to lay out essentially Paul's mission, vision, and values. I don't know that he would use that, that kind of corporate terminology, but that's essentially what he's doing. He's going to lay out <clears throat> where he's going and who he is and how he is going to get there. So, 17. Now, from Miletus, he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them. Again, he's going to lay out basically his mission, vision, and values to them. He says, you yourself know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. You see, one of, one of Paul's core values was Christ-like character. Christ-like character. Character is a long-term word, not a short-term word. In fact, you don't even make character decisions. You make right decisions of a long period of time, and it demonstrates and develops your character. Character is integrity plus courage over a lifetime. That's what character is. Character is the willingness to do what's right according to God, no matter the cost, no matter the circumstances. And so what Paul is saying here to these fellows is, you, you guys know who I am. You know how I conduct myself. From the first day, he lived there for about three years. From the first day I got here until this day, I have served the Lord with all humility. That he is a man of Christ-like character. He goes on to say that he served with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. You know, everywhere he goes, they're trying to kill him. And he begins to say with these men, hey, we, we shed tears together and we toiled together for the sake of the gospel. So one of the things that defined the ministry of the Apostle Paul was sacrificial love. That he didn't see the church at Ephesus. He didn't see any of the churches that he planted as a project. But there was like a love relationship. He loved the people in that church because Christ first loved him. And these elders, these men, are, they gather together and they share tears together. Folks, I wish I could, I could describe to you the place that you have in my heart. If there was a way for me to bust open my chest cavity and you to see in my heart, you would see our church there. And I'm not talking about the renovated Walmart, all right? I'm talking about this church. That this is not a project. This isn't something on a punch list. But this really is our family. And so like yesterday at the ball field, um, after, after our baseball game, JP gets a hot dog and we're just sitting in the bleachers. And this lady comes up and she just starts talking to my kids. And, you know, so, you, you know, you kind of always radar in on that a little bit. And then she looks over at me. She's a grandparent. And she goes, we go to church together, which means she's been paying attention in the sermons, right? So not I go to your church. She, she had the correct terminology. We go to church together. And so I got, I got the chance to spend, I don't know, 20 minutes with Miss Temple. A grandparent moved down here to help her, her son raise his kids, and they, you know, one of them's baseball game was coming up, and I'm just going to tell you, I can't, I can't tell you how much I just cherished the 10 or 15, 20 minutes I had with somebody that's a part of our family, and, and if you want to talk about shedding tears together, the brotherhood that has happened on this elder board, the way God has knit us together for the sake of the gospel and to serve this church, that, that part of what described Paul's ministry is that there was a sacrificial love. It wasn't just about getting thousands of people in a room to hear a message and sign up for the next steps. It actually was driven by love. And if you look at verse 20, it says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So notice how they did Bible study. They did it in public, like we're doing right now. 
Lots of people gathering in one big place all together and house to house. We would call that disciple groups. Verse 21. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Okay, there's, there's a lot here. There's a lot here. You see, Paul was a man of spirit-led courage. Spirit-led courage. Not just arrogance, hey, I'm going to do some stuff just because I want to do it and I think I'm awesome. But spirit-led courage. Paul was the kind of man that he just did whatever God told him to do. That's what he did. He was courageous enough that if God said that to run your head into the brick hall, then he would start running and he would trust God to make a hole. That's the kind of man that Paul was. In fact, later in this passage, we'll see that the elders are going to say to Paul, hey, you might not want to go to Jerusalem because if you do, they'll kill you. And Paul says, I know the Spirit told me the same thing. See you later. I'm gone. All right? That's just because that's the kind of man that he was. A man of Spirit-led courage. And notice, he was constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Now, let me warn some of you charismatics. You cannot blame your laziness or lack of preparation on the Spirit. He will not own that for you. I know a lot of Christians that say, well, I'm not going to plan or I'm not going to make decisions because I'm just going to let the Spirit lead. Well, all throughout the book of Acts, the Spirit would lead in preparation, in perseverance, and in inspiration. In fact, i got some friends of mine that are, that are preachers, and, and really they're just lazy. I'll, I'll talk to them, hey, what are you preaching about this week? Well, I'm not really sure. I'm just going to let the Spirit lead. Well, you know what? He led me to study my Bible. You might want to try that out. You know, you might want to do the work on the front end and not just trust that, that, that the Holy Spirit is just going to speak uh, on a Sunday morning, but he can also speak to you, Pastor, on a Tuesday night when you're studying. And so do not take your laziness and procrastination and somehow try to hang that on the Spirit of God. He will not own that for you. You see, Paul was a man of Spirit-led courage. He just did. Whatever God called him to do, and he trusted God with the, with the consequences. He just did whatever the Spirit led him to do. And so many times there were other people going, I don't know if you should do that. He's like, I know, but that's what he told me to do. So he's got, he had the courage to just trust God with the results. And then in verse, in verse 24, what you get is essentially, it's like a, like a vision statement of Paul or a life plan. Or here's, this was the goal of Paul's life. Verse 24. He says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, he, he says, if only I may finish my course. I don't even count my life as, as something to be talking about. Now, he knew he was valuable. You can read what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, where he said that um, you're not your own, you're bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. So he knew that his value wasn't just in, in and of who he was, but his value was determined when Christ paid his life to purchase Paul. So he was very valuable. But, but here's what I love about Paul, is that... Um, <clears throat> He, he looked forward to that day where he could stand before the Lord and said, I have run my race. I have finished my course. I have poured myself out. I have been obedient, not to what this world wanted from me, but I have been obedient to just do whatever you have called me to do. You see, can you imagine how frustrating the Apostle Paul is to the, to the people that are going to arrest him in the next few chapters? Because the Holy Spirit was right. When he gets to Jerusalem, they do arrest him. And can you imagine how frustrating he is to the, to the cops and to the judges that are 
overseeing Paul's sentence. You see, the handles that the world grabs on to most of us, they had fallen off of the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul would say things like, hey, whether I have plenty or I have nothing, it doesn't matter. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. When they arrest him, they say things to Paul like, we're going to put you in prison. And Paul's thinking, hey, that's fine. Give me a hymnal. I'm going to sing praises and watch the doors fall off. And they go, oh, well, we'll put you in the bottom of the prison. That's cool. I'll just lead the jailer to Christ. How do you like that? Well, fine. Then we'll kill you. That's cool because to live is Christ and to die is gain. What do you do with that guy? What do you do with him? Yeah, go ahead and kill me. I'll be with Jesus. Okay, we'll let you live. That's fine. I'm going to lead Rome to Christ. They didn't even know it. There's not a category for a guy like this. And so he says, this, this is like his life goal, if only I may finish my course. Verse 25, and he says, and now behold, I know that none of, none of you among whom I have gone out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. So this is a farewell speech. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. In other words, when he stands before judgment, that he's clean because he shared the gospel with every church he went to. Verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That biblical integrity was a part of who Paul was. But he said, I wasn't just sharing my opinion, but I was sharing the whole counsel of God. I didn't shy away from the tough parts, but I just brought to you the word of God. And the whole counsel of God primarily has one message. It's, it's, this isn't a book about you. It's a book about Jesus. That he came to redeem the whole world, and that includes you. That's what the Old Testament and the New Testament is about. And Paul said, that's what he was faithful to. Now... The thing that landed on me the most is this verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course. Let me ask you this, folks. What course are you on? What course are you on? Because my guess is that most of you are just in the lazy river of life. And if you've become a Christian, now you're just in a new lazy river. You just got the evangelical lazy river, all right? And it's a cesspool too, okay? You're just going around lap after lap after lap. And how could you even know if you finished the course if you don't even know what the course is? If you haven't marked out the course. If you hadn't said, this is the track that I want to be on. You don't even know if you are tracking if you don't know what track you're even supposed to be on. And so, so many times what happens to us individually is we just kind of get in the flow. You see, I knew when we planted this church... That mission and vision and values were going to be very, very important. I mean, missions of every organization begin to drift like crazy, don't they? Like they start out with this clear vision and this clear mission. And then, and then if, if they don't stay laser focused on they say, if they can drift like crazy. Like the Young Men's Christian Association. Did you know that originally that organization was about evangelism and discipleship? You know what now it is? Now it's, it's an organization about basketball and drunk people making letters out of their body. That's what the thing is about. And, and, and again, maybe you love the YMCA. YMCA does great things, but they ain't doing a lot of evangelism and discipleship these days. They've drifted. And so one of the things that I wanted to be crystal clear on is that I knew our church needed clear vision so that we could be like Paul and saying, as a church, if only I may finish my course. And so we mapped out a, a vision statement for our church, prayed like crazy, elders got together, staff got together, and said the vision for the church of 1122 is that we are a movement, not a church building, but a movement. And a movement for all people, all kind of people, all color people, all age people. If you fall in the all people category, then you can be a part of the church of 1122, regardless of your background or even where you were last night or where you think you're going tomorrow, that, that we're an all people kind of church. To do two things, 
to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not one or the other here, okay? It's not either we lead people to Christ or we make disciples. We actually try to do both. That we want folks to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I also knew that it would be very important for us to map out, for us to map out core values. What are those values as staff and leadership that we want to hold very, very dear as we try to make disciple-making disciples here at the church? And so we, we developed four, and one of the things as I was studying this passage that I love is that all four of our core values are represented here as Paul is talking about um, his, his core values in his ministry. The first one for us was this, biblical integrity. And if you look at verse 27, Paul says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so I don't know if you've noticed, but we make a big deal about the Bible around here. That we want to be a church of biblical integrity. That we could stand up under the pressures of this world. That we would do what's right according to God no matter what. And I wouldn't just get up here and share with you a whole lot of opinion of how you can be a better version of you. But each week, I don't know if you've noticed, we just open up the book every time. Read a verse, here's what it means. Read a verse, here's what it means. Read a verse, reminds me of a story. I had two dogs. That's how we do it around here. Just to try to illustrate what the word is saying. And so, in fact, one of the reasons we teach through books of the Bible here is so that we just teach what it says. And I'm not going to shy away from the politically incorrect, and I love you enough to hurt you a little and tell you the truth. And so, we want to be a church of biblical integrity. We also want to be a church of spirit-led courage. Like, look at verse 23, 22 and 23. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. This is a tough verse for the uh, prosperity gospel guys, right? Because what do you say to Paul? Paul, apparently you don't have enough faith, okay? Can't we all agree that Paul was a faith-filled Christian? And so he didn't get health, wealth, and happiness. God promised him, in your faithfulness, Paul, here's what you can expect. In every city, you'll be imprisoned and afflicted. So I don't know what the prosperity guys do with these verses. Hey, Paul, Paul, you need to quit writing the Bible and work on your faith, okay? So you can get a Cadillac. I'm not sure what you do with that. But here's the thing about Paul. He was a man of spirit-led courage. I want us to be a church of spirit-led courage. Not just brash arrogance, but that we would be so attuned to what God wants us to do that the Spirit would speak to us, we would recognize His voice, and then we would have the courage to just do whatever He tells us to do and trust Him with the consequences. See, um, the opposite of faith, I talk about this all the time, the opposite of faith is not doubt. If you have doubts about the Bible, about God, about Jesus, about all of that, Christianity, you would make a great disciple, Do you realize that? You would make a great disciple. Do you know one of the disciples' nickname was what? Doubting Thomas. Do you know what he doubted? He didn't doubt the dinosaurs and seven days creation. Or he didn't doubt whether Jonas was, was that a story or did that really happen? Do you know what he doubted? The resurrection of Jesus. It's kind of the whole point of the whole thing. All right? He doubted the main point of the whole thing. And then what does Jesus do? Does Jesus show up after he resurrected and go, hey, where's Doubting Thomas? You're out. No. He said, oh, you need proof? Bam, proof. Loose translation. He didn't say bam. He just showed it. So if you're a doubter, man, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. Now, don't just stay there. But, but 
you'd make a great disciple. So the opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's fear. And fear paralyzes. And faith calls to action. And we're going to be a church of action. Listen, when we were planting this thing, I had some fearful people coming around me. First of all, I had people tell me, you, you, oh, goodness, you can't spend $3 million on a building. You've never even been a church yet. What you've got to do is you've got to start in a middle school, school cafetorium, okay? And you kind of got to build a crowd. And I was like, nah, we're going to Walmart. And then <laughs> I had some denominational people get around me and say this. And, and they said that, that the, the size of the sanctuary should be 300 people. And I went, close, 1,800. That's where we're going, day one. And we should do one service with 300 seats in it. That's what we, that's what we were told. That's what I was told. Kind of for, you know, be conservative and for safety's sake. And I go, we prayed like crazy. And said, okay, we're going 1,800 seats, three services on day one. That's what we're doing. Why? Not because not I'm trying to have a big church, because if, that's what we thought the Spirit was leading us to do. And we're not going to be led by fear. We're going to walk in faith, and we're going to be a people of Spirit-led courage. Listen, we just had a, a team of ladies, our first, I think it's our first ladies' trip, just went to Costa Rica. And... Uh, I was, I was picking on Carrie Williams, who led the trip, just because she's easy to pick on uh, about, uh, you know, I was really picking on her. I don't mean this whatsoever, but I would say, you know, what are y'all going to do? Are y'all going to teach knitting or whatever? Because I knew, here's what I knew. Oh, she'd get fired up, boy, fired up. Because <laughs> I knew she's one of the most courageous people I've ever met in my entire life. And um, so what they did is that the group of women took the gospel into the roughest neighborhoods in the city that are just known for sex trafficking. And they, they, they're probably the most courageous missions team we've had so far going into those places. And it's because they were led by somebody full of spirit-led courage. I don't know if you know Carrie Williams, all right? She's, she's little. She's skinny. She's small. She's a little blonde. And she's, you know, kind of high-pitched. And if you've ever heard her sneeze, it sounds like an Indy car going by. It goes, meep, you know? <laughs> Bless you. What just happened? So that's what she is. You know, small, blonde, petite, and just full of courage, spirit-led courage. So one day, <clears throat> that's the best story I know to exemplify. One day, um, I was in my office, and, and a guy was, I'd let him borrow a shotgun, and he was bringing it back to me here at the church. And he didn't think it was a great idea to put it in the case. He was just going to walk in with the shotgun, right? <laughs> Double-barrel shotgun. And it's kind of embarrassing, so I don't want to let you know who it is, but his initials are Lars Peterson, okay? So, <laughs> and I don't know if you were here back in November, but um, it was during our Bold series. So we asked the entire church, you know, all the men and women that could, to grow a mustache for the Bold series. Well, Petey grows his mustache, doesn't really like the color of it, so he darkens it black. So it looks extra creepy, you know? If, you, if you're not a regular mustache person and you go mustache, it's gross. And so that's what we all look really bad. And so here comes Petey, comes in to the front door with a double barrel shotgun. And <clears throat> now, typically, we, you know, our doors are locked. We have security and the, the receptionist buzz you in, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, well, our, our receptionist, our volunteer receptionist is sitting at the front desk. And somebody had propped the door open because they were moving stuff in and out. And then here comes this man with creepy old guy mustache and a double barrel shotgun. Just walking in the door, probably laughing. Ha, 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 right? Here he comes. And so she doesn't know that this is Lars Peterson, chairman of the Board of Elders. All she knows, creepy guy with a gun, we're dead. This is Columbine. It's over. Okay? So this sweet, precious lady just 
leans her head down the hall and says, there's a man with a gun. Now, I don't know any of this is going on. I'm sitting in my office talking to Pastor Ryan. All right, Carrie Williams, little squeaky Carrie, all right, little blonde, small Carrie comes running in my office, says, there's a man with a gun. He's coming to kill you, Joby. Get under your desk. She's just screaming at me in a much higher octave, okay? Get under. He doesn't know who we are. He's coming to kill you. Get under your desk. And so there I am like, ah. Now, Pastor Ryan is in my office, all right? Everybody know Pastor Ryan? We'll just say it this way. Physically speaking, Pastor Ryan is the exact opposite of Carrie Williams. Everybody got that? Is that good enough? So there's Ryan. Ryan kind of scooches up into the corner like that. And I'm thinking... I'm not as so afraid of the gunman as I am of Carrie Williams. I'm thinking, I might have to get under my desk or she's going to kill me. So she says, get under your desk. And she's screaming at me right there. And so Ryan hides in the corner. And I'm just kind of thinking, you know, where's my bow and arrow? That kind of thing. And then you know what Carrie does? Now, Carrie doesn't know it's Petey and doesn't know that one day we'll be laughing about it and telling about 4,000 people. But she thinks a man with a gun is coming in to kill me. And so she peels out of my office and up the hallway. To head toward the danger. And I don't know what she thought she was going to do when she got there. I don't know. But I told her this. You got job security for the rest of your life, girl. <laughs> so, so as a church, when God calls us to do something courageous, we're stepping in and we're doing it. Because we're going to be a church of spirit-led courage. And then also, we want to be a church of sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. The love's not really love until you cost you something. I mean, we live in a society where love has lost all its meaning, right? I love Jesus, I love my wife, and I love tacos. How is that even in the same? But God demonstrated his love with the death of his son on our behalf. And so we want to be a church, like a family. This isn't just about getting things done, but it's about getting things done together as a family because we love each other sacrificially. And so when we started this church, man, I mapped it out. This is who we are. This is what we're doing. This is where we're going. And I put this as the point that one rarely achieves anything awesome by accident. One rarely achieves anything awesome by accident. And you know this to be true. So the reason Paul had such an amazing ministry is because he knew what his course was. If only I may finish my course. And his course was that he would, he would live out the ministry that he received from Jesus. And his ministry was to testify the gospel of grace of God. And so he knew his course, and so he achieved some amazing things on purpose. Some of you are just kind of going with the flow. And you know that it's true. I mean, you know intuitively that you don't achieve anything awesome by accident. Because you know you've never talked to a rich guy and said, Hey, dude, how'd you get so rich? Nobody's ever answered, I don't know. I mean, seriously, I have no idea. We never tracked our income. We never tracked our expenses. I think it was mileage points, maybe, for credit card. I'm not sure. In fact, one day we're standing around talking in the kitchen, and I said, Martha, I think we should probably check our bank account. Wonder what that's doing. And and so I sat down, and I logged on and said, Martha, get in here. We are rich. And she said, shut up. You're kidding me. I know. Who would have thought we just got rich one day? Never. That never accidentally happens. And you know the same thing is true relationally. You've never met a married couple. I mean, they've been married like 30 or 40 years and they're still into it. And you look at them and they're holding hands and opening doors. And I mean, you just are thinking, God, I want to be like that one day. And so you ask him, come here, old fellow, how in the world? 
How did you get there? That deep abiding intimacy. And he's never gone. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. We just kind of neglected each other for our whole lives. And I tell you what did it for us. We were such good taxi cab drivers for our children and their teenagers. Those years. I mean, she did such a good job of getting into ballet and meet a football practice. And we ignored each other for all these years. And now we're just walking in a deep abiding intimacy. It just doesn't happen that way. Or physically. You've never seen somebody physically fit and be like, wow, dude, you're ripped. And they go, well, look in there. <laughs> How'd that happen? Wow, I just eat whatever they put in front of me. Just drive through, get whatever I want. One day I was changing clothes and went, holy moly, I look amazing. It doesn't happen that way. Or if you've ever met somebody with teenage kids that are just, I mean, they love the Lord and they're humble. Teenagers, humble. And they think of other people and they're respectful. So they're at a four and an almost eight-year-old. If I find parents with a 14 and an 18-year-old that are like that, I get up close to them and say, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? Because I want mine to turn out like yours. So talk to me. Talk to me. And I've never heard a parent go, I had no idea. No, we plopped them down in front of SpongeBob at three. And then, ta-da! Awesome. No! Because you know, you've experienced what I know, that one rarely achieves anything awesome by accident. There's a teenager in our church that was here um, over the summer where we rolled out the Restore Project for the first time and told everybody about how on a weekly basis we have to turn families away. And, and so we've got to expand the 20 plus thousand square feet behind us to add new gen space. And he was so convicted by that that he did something about it. And his story, his story is so amazing that we filmed it so that he could share it with you over all of our services all weekend long. And so take just a minute and watch the story of this teenager. We've been coming to 1122 since this church opened, and um, we found a home here because before we found this church, we were church hopping a little bit. Um, so since then, we've been coming here fluently every week, and um, a couple weeks ago, Joby was talking about a message where um, he had to turn people away because there wasn't enough room in the church. And hearing that, I didn't really like hearing that people couldn't come to church because there wasn't enough room. So we went home, and um, I wanted to, I, I know about the Restore Project, and I wanted to give to that. My parents and I, we had a talk of what I can give up for value that has value because um, I wanted to give money to the church. And my dad's first idea was to give up my Xbox. And I looked at him like, Dad, how about you give up your Starbucks? So uh, that wasn't an option. But then we, we remembered that uh, my dad and I were going to go on a trip to Philadelphia, where we're from. And we we're going to go watch a couple of Phillies games, a couple of baseball games. And we were just going to, we we're going to hang out there and see family. And my part of the trip was $500. And so I told my dad that I would like to even though how much it meant to me I would like to give up that uh, trip and sell the tickets just to give to the $500 to the Restore Project so what we did was I sold the tickets and we got the $500 and I wrote a check in my name to the Church of 1122's Restore Project and um, I felt really you know happy about that even though I was missing out on spending quality time with my dad but a couple days ago two games both games that we we're going to go to came on TV so my dad and I watched it um, and the first 
game, we lost, and the second game was rained out, so actually it was a good idea we didn't go because we didn't really miss anything, so I was really happy about that. Giving up something that my dad and I both were looking really forward to, um, I was able to look into everything that I have and realize that everything I have has value, and there's people and there's organizations like this that could use stuff of value, so families and people, any individuals in general that um, need God can have God, and they won't get turned away because there's not enough room somewhere. But the Restore Project is really important to me, and the, hearing about the families being turned away is really important to me, because had I been turned away and I didn't feel welcome, I wouldn't have come to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Okay. Now, that's a teenage boy. You get me? A teenage, if it was a girl, we'd give him a pass because y'all mature faster. We all know that. But this is a teenage boy thinking of somebody else, thinking of giving up something for somebody else. That does not happen by accident. That means mama and daddy were on a course for that kid to grow up in so that he could arrive where he has arrived. And, And you can even hear a part of the plan. I don't know if they had their plan mapped out, but you can hear a part of the plan in his story that dad is taking some time off and taking his son to go on a trip so they can spend some time together. So let me give you a confession, okay? Big confession. So I, um, I'm a part of a, of, a, um, of like a roundtable discussion group of a bunch of pastors from around the country, and, and it's kind of a prestigious thing to be invited into in my world. It's, it's by the Leadership Network. Um, and the reason I got invited into it is because of you, because you bring so many people. Our church has grown so fast that, that I got invited into this thing. And these older pastors are supposed to pour into the younger pastors, and these guys have big old monster churches. And so uh, you, have to have, you have to pastor a church of over a certain amount of thousand people, and you've you got to be under 40. So I just made it in last semester, right? Well, so I go to be a part of this thing. It's in Eugene, Oregon. And we're at this famous pastor's house. He wouldn't be famous to you, but he is to me. And so he's kind of a big deal. And we're at his house. And they're, I mean, they're teaching us stuff, mission, vision, values, this kind of deal. And quite honestly, I, I felt really great about the direction of our church and the clarity of vision of our church. And that, that's a big part of why God is blessing us because, because people are getting on board with what the Lord is doing. And on, on the last day of our time together, they put this huge like sticky note deal on the wall. And the top half of this big piece of paper stuck to the wall is all about goals for the next six months for your church. And so I go to that thing and I get my marker out and it takes me about two minutes to chart that deal out. I mean, it was a piece of cake. Here's where we're going and here's what we're doing and we're doing the Restore Project and the people in the room are like, what, you, can, you haven't even been open six months and you're already expanding? And I go, I know, it's awesome, right? Spirit-led courage. And I've got it up there and I've got our values and here we go and here's what we're going to do. We're going to baptize in the summer and we're going to do a revival in the fall and I mean, just knock it out in a second. And then the bottom half, goals for your family. And I was just, I mean, overwhelmed with conviction of the Holy Spirit. And here's why. Look, I'm a family guy, okay? I, I mean, I am. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I'm all in. But here, here's, here's, here's the problem. On the way home, I texted Gretchen and said, hey, when I get home, I, I've got a confession to make. And, you know, she's thinking, oh, no, what kind of trip is this? I'm like, no, no, it's not like this. <laughs> and I had to get home and repent before my wife and children and say, I think I've done a good job at our church casting clear vision and direction and setting the course for our church. And yet with my first church, my own family, I just have kind of assumed, because we all love Jesus, that it's just going to kind of turn out the way I've got it pictured in my mind. And so I apologize. 
And so what I'm going to do for our family is I'm going to take do put the time in that it takes to to set the course for our family. And so Covey just came out with a book, How to Write a Family Mission Statement. So I ordered the book, and, and when it came out, I read through it, and, and it's okay. And then I told the family, all right, look, we're gathering together every Wednesday night for the next four to six weeks, however long it takes. And I'm going to try to do for our church what, what, what we're going to do here in the house. And just say, this is our course. Because how can you say I've finished my course if you don't know what the course is? And I don't want to just assume that my kids are going to grow up to love Jesus and act like it. And so we sat down over the last bunch of weeks, about four, five weeks, and we, we penned the, the Martin family mission statement. Why? So, because I know that one rarely achieves anything awesome by accident, and that includes my family. And so your action step, what I want you to do, as I put it in your notes, you can go to coe22.com slash family mission, and I want you to do the work. Now, if you got older kids, don't think, well, we missed it. If you don't have kids, don't think, well, we don't need to do this because we don't have kids. No, your family needs a course. If you got grandkids, if you think we're too old, then you're wrong. I mean, we've got to know what course that we're on. And if you're not married yet, then you need to do this too. And if you think, I ain't never getting married again, then you need to do this too. That you go to coe22.com slash family mission. And, and also, let me just debunk this myth too, because I know what you're thinking. Some of you guys don't think of me the way you should, all right? You, you, you've got me up on this pedestal. Let me tell you how it didn't go. <laughs> I didn't say to my kids, hey, for the next four to six weeks, we're going to gather at the kitchen table and we're going to work on our family mission statement. And our kids just go, yay, shall we bring the good book, Father? Yes, you shall, my son. <laughs> and we all gather around the table, shall we begin? And JP say, can I pray first? And then we pray. And then after that, Gretchen say, may I lead us in a hymn or a spiritual song and sing? And then Reagan quote scripture. That is not how it went. I mean, we almost had to use like a ball and chain to keep everybody at the table for the 22 minutes that we were devoting to this and to keep the distractions of the TV off. And, and in fact, like I, we made it really, really easy. Our, our family pastor, Pastor Jeremy, has put this thing together and I included some of the questions that I used with my family to kind of mine around and, and dig up why we exist as a family, what our purpose is. And the worst thing you could do is just rip mine off. The process is important. But it, it, was, it was frustrating. I mean, it was tough. In fact, uh, on like the first week, I asked this question, hey, what's your favorite thing about our family? And Gretchen talks for a second. And JP shares some really great things. And then Reagan raises her hand. There's four of us at the table. Yes, you, to my right. What you got? Reagan was three. And she says, my favorite thing about our family is Kai and Taylor. That's Ben's kids. I'm like, they're not even in our family, Reagan. You don't get this. That ain't Martin blood, I'm just saying. So, and then, and then I, I, I go, okay, okay. So what's your favorite family memory? You know what Reagan's is? When Kai and Taylor come to my birthday party. So I'm like, oh gosh, you don't even know how to play this game. So that's kind of what we're doing, all right? But as we began to go through that, what, what began to happen is, I mean, everybody kind of got into it. Everybody got, got into it. And, and said some profound things. And the process was just as important as the product. And so, one of the days, I, I can't remember if it was the second week or the fourth week or whatever it was, but 
I ask, what's, uh, why does our family exist? What's the purpose of our family? In other words, it's almighty sovereign God of all the six billion plus people has decided to put us four together to be the Martins. Why would he put us four together? What, why do we exist? And JP took it very, very seriously, seven years old. And he kind of scratches his head and he says, well, I think our purpose is to help this world and help people love Jesus. And then Gretchen looks up like, ding, 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 winner, right? <laughs> and so what we did is um, that was really like the core of our mission statement. And over the, you know, doing some work, this is what we wrote down. It says, the Martin family mission is to glorify God because everybody, everything was created for the glory of God. So in Romans 12, 1, in Luke 10, 27, in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, it's all about glorifying God. So the Martin family mission is to glorify God by doing these three things. By loving and honoring one another. That's the way we treat each other in our own home. By loving and honoring one another. By impacting the world. That's what JP was saying, to help the world. And by helping others love Jesus. And so, that's our course. And then, what Gretchen's going to do with this, which is brilliant, is, um, I mean, the way she decorates our house is so cool. And from our living room out to our front door, we have this little hallway, and the hallway has three little archways. And she's going to take these cedar planks, and we're going to engrave on three cedar planks these three things, love and honor one another, impact the world, and help others love Jesus. So that every day when we go out on our course as a family... There they are. You know, be a little bit like Notre Dame when they run out and play like champions today. Except we love Jesus, okay? So, I don't like Notre Dame. So, we're going to go out every day and we're going to be reminded of those three things. Be reminded of those three things. So that one day, I can even be able to say, if only I may finish my course. That maybe that statement might echo through the generations. Not just my kids, but maybe their grandkids. As Martins would be able to say, hey, this is why we exist. So what about you? What about you? And so regardless of your family situation, okay, if you're married with kids, not married, single, used to be married, want to be married, whatever it is, I would say take the time to do this. You know why? It's important. Like, single girls, listen to me real quick. Can you imagine if you were going out with a godly man? Remember, you don't date a guy, okay? A guy is this kind of ambiguous boy that can shave. So 1122 girls don't date guys. Y'all date godly men. All right, so imagine going out with a godly man and about the third or fourth date, he kind of leans up and says, well, you know what? I'm I'm about to declare my intentions here and I think this is going in a godly direction. And so I just want to lay out for you, here's here's my mission statement for my life. Here's how I'm going to glorify God. You know what you'd do? I know what you'd do. You'd pray and faint at the same time. Oh, Jesus, boom, you'd be done. What just happened? Right? A little pixie dust. Fall on you. So, fellas, you know I just said that for you, right? So get to work, boys. Get to work on how you, what your course look like. And then, and then here's the thing. Here's the truth of this for me. Is that I can't do it alone. I can't do it alone. Is that it takes more than a village to raise kids. It takes a church. Like, I need your help. Did you know that I can't make my kids do any of these things? But you know what my job as a parent is? Is to just get the kindling around them so the Holy Spirit lights that, lights that spark of faith in their life. I have done my job as a parent to gather around enough kindling that it just lights up. Pastor David Jeremiah, who was here last week in Jacksonville somewhere, he said, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But you can feed him salty peanuts. 
And that's a part of what we're doing with our kids and with our family. And so <clears throat> I can't do this alone. I need your help. And that's a big part of what the Restore Project is about. It's a big part of what the Restore Project is about. So that I know when we bring our kids to this place, all right, and, and even, I mean, today, right now on the other side of that wall and in Karate Dojo and in our little trailer out back, there are hundreds and hundreds of kids. And you know what's happening? New Gen Disciple Group leaders are taking kindling and they're just bringing them around our children. They're, they're reinforcing what you're going to say your family mission statement is. you got people that are reinforcing that. And in some of those rooms, there's like 35 children in one room. And they have a hard time paying attention to one person with 35 people their height standing all around them. And so as we expand into the Restore Project, we need you to get all in on the Restore Project. So that we can double our space so that when those kids, when my kids are sharing their story one day, sharing their testimony one day, a part of their story is what we did to create the kind of environments for those children in this church. So that they could love Jesus and love the world. So we need your help. And here's what's cool. I I began to think about this um, over the weekend. That for those of you that are going to get involved financially with the Restore Project... It'll be awesome when we open this, this renovated space behind us in the middle of December. That'll be so cool. But I don't think we've begun to realize the kind of echo of that impact. And the impact that it could have on generations and generations and generations here in Jacksonville and around the world. Because we joined together to finish the course that God had marked out for us. That one rarely does Anything, one rarely achieves anything awesome by accident. And so let us mark out the course that Christ has marked out for us. Let us get on course personally. Let us get on course as a family. And then as a church, our course is to fund this restore project so that those little ones on the other side of that wall right now could know Jesus and live like it. And I need your help. If you would, please stand and pray with me. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much that, um, God, that you had a plan to redeem this world. Now, God, we live in time, and so it's so hard for us to begin to understand, to try to understand your sovereignty and the fact that you are eternal and that for you there is no time. But, God, the Bible says that before the beginning of time, before the foundations of the world, that you were thinking about us that you had planned to send your son, Jesus Christ, to shed his blood to purchase us. And so, God, you had set out a course. You had set out a course that we would be redeemed this day. Lord, I pray for the people in this room. God, I pray for the husbands in this room. Lord, I pray that they would lead, that they would lead by walking their family through this family covenant. Lord, I pray for the single people in this room that, that one day will be married. God, I pray... By the power of the Holy Spirit, God, you would mark out their course for them. And they would know if they're on course or not. God, I pray for the folks in this room that uh, the course isn't going exactly the way they had planned. For the single moms and the single dads in this place. God, I pray that they would know that um, just because they're off course right now, God, that, that you have a purpose and a plan for them. Lord, I pray that they would sit down with their family or whatever their family looks like, God. 
Holy Spirit, you would be present there, full of grace and full of truth to mark out the mission for every single person that calls this church home. So that one day, we could stand before you saying, I have run the race. I have finished the course that you have marked out for me. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.